CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is The Hash Podcast. Stay informed with the latest on Bitcoin, ETH, the Metaverse, Web3, and more. All on The Hash for your ears. You're listening to the Coindesk Podcast Network. Happy Monday. You're watching The Hash on Coindesk TV. I'm Will Foxley, joined by Jen Sanasi and Ben Schiller, the managing editor for features and opinions on Coindesk.com. Be sure to check out his work. But first, we got Jen for a story about Japan and regulatory clarity. All right, we are going off to Japan, where the Financial Services Agency has flagged Bybit, Bitforex, MEXE Global, and BitGet via a warning letter. The notice says that the four exchanges are in violation of the country's fund settlement laws by conducting crypto asset exchange business without registration. Sounds familiar. Separately, the Japanese Prime Minister is hosting this year's G7 Summit, which will have a focus on tightening global crypto regulations. Ben, I'm going to toss this one off to you. Are you surprised to see this out of Japan this morning? Not at all, actually. And Japan is an interesting case of regulation. It's often held up as a country that's uh, further ahead than other jurisdictions in regulating crypto and regulating uh, particular exchanges, because uh, obviously this goes right back to Mt. Gox, which was the first big hack in crypto history. At the time, in 2014, roughly um, about 70% of Bitcoin was transacted over Mt. Gox, and then it was a massive failure of that exchange. And that led to regulators in Japan putting together a bunch of regulations that are seen as a template for other countries to adopt uh, worldwide, including the US. Uh, There was another big hack in 2017, CoinCheck which I think it was the biggest uh, ever. So I'm not surprised to see this happening because regulators there are clearly on the case and there's clear regulatory guidelines uh, as to what is and what isn't acceptable in the management of exchanges. So I'm not surprised at all. Yeah, picking up where Ben left off there. I think that Mt. Gox thing is instructive, right? Since Mt. Gox was based in Japan, Mark Capellas was based in Japan, like they sort of set the regulatory framework pretty early on, as opposed to other countries, particularly in the US, right? Like we're always talking on this show about like, when is the SEC or the CFTC or another regulatory body in the United States going to come up with actually defined granular details on how cryptocurrency and cryptocurrency exchanges should be operated and regulated? Japan already did that quite a while ago, so it's been pretty easy to understand what is okay there and what is not okay there. And they're also seemingly pretty on the beat in terms of like handing out fines or handing out warnings to people who are not acting within those rules. And I'm just saying that from a headline and layman opinion, not someone who necessarily follows Japan's regulatory stance on crypto that closely. But historically, that's what I've seen quite often is they've been on the beat quite a bit. 
One thing I do want to bring up here is like we have these three exchanges and they're pretty no name. Like the only one I've really heard of out of these three or four is Bybit. But that doesn't mean that the whole area isn't having some sort of change right now. So the biggest headline most recently is Coinbase decided to start winding down its operations in the region back in January. And users of Coinbase Japan had until February to basically liquidate all their assets or get them off the exchange before Coinbase was going to permanently shut it down. So, you know, people are leaving the area right now because of the regulatory crackdown. The rules and guidelines are there, but they can always be enforced or be more strictly enforced or read a little bit differently than they were in the past based on what's occurred. I think FTX was the thing that occurred in the past. Last bit here before I throw it back to you, Jen, is FTX Japan. And in that chapter 11 case, they were able to give back their assets almost one-to-one for every single customer of FTX Japan because that entity had to follow the regulatory stance of Japan, which means that everything had to be backed up and everything had to be checked with the regulators. So we do see like a very strong regulatory stance in Japan, which forces some people to get warnings or forces some businesses to shut down. But in the case of Chapter 11 and for customers, it seems to be a good thing. Back to you, Jen. Yeah, Will, you took what I was going to say about FTX Japan. So they were among the first customers to get some of their money back in the FTX debacle. Uh, When I look at the story, if I zoom out a little bit, right, we recently spoke about exchanges thinking about how they're going to operate in Canada. I think Binance in that article that we spoke about last week said, well, they didn't say this. Someone with information said that it looks like Binance might be leaving Canada. We see exchanges in the US trying to kind of figure out how to step around all of the subpoenas that are going out with this very unclear regulation. And now we have four exchanges hit with this warning letter in Japan. I feel like, you know, when we talk about U.S. regulation, we we talk about exchanges moving away to get away from this tightening of regulation. And now it just looks like all of the other countries are looking at what's happening in North America and doing something quite similar. Ben, I'm going to toss this back to you. Do you think that this kind of global tightening of restrictions when it comes to centralized exchanges is going to really change the way that we look and we interact with crypto? Well, I think there's a big question now about the U.S. crypto industry, whether it's going to leave the U.S. because of the regulatory uncertainty. And it isn't necessarily because of a crackdown. It's really because a lot of companies just don't know where they stand because uh, we have enforcement. Well, we have regulation by enforcement rather than regulation by clear guidance. So if you're operating here, according to these companies, uh, you know, it's just not clear what is allowed and what isn't allowed. And that just leads to, you know, high legal costs, high compliance costs and uh, no certainty that you're going to be, you know, not held up by uh, a regulator at some point. So that's why uh, companies are, are leaving, not necessarily because of a crackdown, but because of the uncertainty. Okay, well, let's move away from that subject and actually go to something that is even more confusing than the regulatory landscape. And that is the world of Ethereum, MEV, invalidators, and bots. We had this story come up today talking about how basically an Ethereum validator was able to swoop in and beat up a bot and earn about $20 million by doing so. I'm going to take a step back and go through the story because it is quite a confusing one. But it's an important one given that a lot of these transactions are now on chain. A lot of the world transactions are increasingly moving to these like really dark foresty parts of the Ethereum ecosystem. And it's good to understand them. So essentially what happened here was an Ethereum validator was able to understand what was going inside of an MEV block. 
MEV is also termed uh, minor tractable value or maximal tractable value, basically corresponds to a group of people who are able to order transactions and extract value from people who are sending those transactions on chain. And then that bot or the person behind the MEV is able to earn a little bit of money. In this case, the, we have two different entities, really, these MEV people, and then we have the validators on the Ethereum ecosystem, which can be sort of thought of as like Bitcoin miners, but just for Ethereum. Typically, these two entities, the MEV operators and the validators, operate differently and distantly. The validators take the work that the MEV operators are putting together, they publish it on chain, and everyone's happy. But in this instance, we saw something a little bit different, where the Ethereum validator actually went rogue, understood what the MEV operator was doing, and took all the extractable value that the MEV operator was going to publish on chain for themselves costing the MEV operator about $20 million for a pretty small transaction. So TLDR here is that we might see the rise of some Ethereum validators being a little bit more proactive with how they're going to be publishing things on chain, or at least that's what we're looking at so far. Jen, I'll throw this one over to you. Like I said, it's a confusing story. And like you said before we started talking this morning, you used ChatGPT to understand this a little bit more. So what's your I takeaway sure from this whole did. story? Well, my takeaway was that, Will, you did a better job at explaining than ChatGPT. So, you know, I one can't be for replaced the humans. By AI. There we go, this. baby. Exactly. <laughs> there we go. And I guess the second question I have for you is, is there... Well, it sounds to me like there's this like growing war, this anger from the validators when it comes to these MEV bots. Do you think we're going to see like more, I am not sure if I should call it malicious, but more malicious validators looking to extract value from these bots? Is it something that needs to be solved? I have so many questions about this. So please explain to me. Yeah, this is a really fun story because there's like lots of different weird storylines we could follow along. But I think the simple answer is probably not. Most of the time, how these things are constructed, you're going to have some weird edge cases. And this looks like a very weird edge case that costs somebody about $20 million. So an unfortunate edge case, but they do happen in Ethereum. If you've been paying attention to anything with Ethereum, it's financialized. And there's a lot of things going on that cost people a lot of money when they go poorly. In this case, it looks like someone is able to figure out how to use a validator, how to put that validator in line to be able to publish a block and how they were able to like steal MEV from someone else who was already building it. And typically, we don't see those two entities, again, the MEV the operator and the validator working together. In fact, they're supposed to be separated entirely. But whoever this validator was, seemingly, from what we know so far, was able to understand what an MEV operator was doing, steal that information, and then make money off of it. If I was to guess what's going to happen with this whole storyline, I would say that there's going to be a change of code on the MEV operator side. So something like this won't happen again. On the validator side, a lot of this stuff is done on the larger level, on the blockchain level. Like It takes years to see any sort of changes of code in Ethereum. So it takes a lot of work for this to be able to change on the validator side. I think the MEV operators will just get a little smarter and they'll change how they're doing things. And then you won't be able to do this as a validator. And just a note, it's important that these two different groups stay separated. In Bitcoin, they are separated also, right? We don't want miners necessarily controlling the chain because then you kind of get back to the Visa problem, right? Where a centralized authority can decide how transactions are going to be ordered on chain and just becomes a mess. Ben, I'll throw it over to you. Yeah, I have a question as well. I mean, how much of a problem do you think 
you know, the kind of rise of AI and these bots is going to have for situations like this? And is it a common occurrence that we're seeing in Ethereum? Yeah, great question. AI stuff and Ethereum is definitely something that's going to happen. And we are seeing like the rise of more of these bots that are programmed and then just run into the wild. Oftentimes, someone will program a bot, they'll load it up with Ethereum, ETH, and then just set it loose. And it will just keep running and running and running until it just maximizes as much value as it can get off chain, or it runs out of Ethereum. And there's basically two ends there, right? Like the bot is successful, it makes a lot of money, or the bot fails and just dies. And the program has to come back, reset the code a little bit, tinker with it, try to do it again. That being said, all this stuff is very complex. And I think it'll take a while for AI or something like that to be able to pick up the pieces. Oftentimes, these uh, bots and these MEV things, they're run in little trade shops uh, by sometimes larger firms, but often by like little trading groups. They're very hard to make and oftentimes they're not very profitable. You have to be very good at what you're doing on chain in order to earn any sort of money. Join Coindesk's Consensus 2023, the most important conversation in crypto and Web3 happening April 26th through 28th in Austin, Texas. Consensus is the industry's only event bringing together all sides of crypto, Web3, and the metaverse. Immerse yourself in all that blockchain technology has to offer creators, builders, founders, brand leaders, entrepreneurs, and more. Use code THEHASH to get 15% off your pass. Visit consensus.coindesk.com or check the link in the show notes. I'm going to get to my segment now, which is a op-ed that we recently published on Coindesk.com by Peter McCormack. He wrote an op-ed that was entitled, Balaji Srinivasian's $1 million bet could be right, but I hope he's wrong. And this is picking up on a prediction from Balaji Srinivasian, who is a former CTO at Coinbase and another prominent commentator. And he was saying that if Srinivasian's prediction of $1 million by June 17th is correct, that would point to big problems in the US financial system and would not be desirable even if people in Bitcoin were making money from it. This basically goes into a long-term debate about Bitcoin, about whether it's an inflation hedge or when inflation is going up. Bitcoin should also be going up because it's hard money uh, against soft money. And Peter McCormack says in this op-ed that while it might be true that the inflation hedge is making a re-emergence as inflation is rising and monetary people are making reactions to the financial crisis, the banking crisis, it's not necessarily desirable that Bitcoin is going up in, in that circumstance. And what we really need is widespread adoption of Bitcoin in order to make that uh, inflation hedge thesis something good for the world. Uh, and at the moment, Bitcoin is mostly a speculative asset. So if its price is rising, then uh, it's not necessarily a, a good thing. So uh, what do you guys think about that? Uh, Jen, do you want to start with this? Yeah, sure. I have so many opinions on this article. It went in a lot of different directions. And it just reminded me on this show, we spoke about the collapse of the three banks a few weeks ago and the depegging of USDC. And I said, just these events immediately made me reflect on the Bitcoin white paper and what was going on in the world at that time. In the article, he says that the people who need Bitcoin are accessing Bitcoin. And he points to people in different areas, people in different communities who have been failed by the financial systems there. And I think that this like debate on Bitcoin as an alternative to the traditional financial system is one that will continue and is one that is healthy. And for me, my main takeaway is at least there is an alternative to the traditional financial system. And I completely agree that people who really actually need Bitcoin and aren't here speculating 
trading on the price, aren't here just you know to make a quick buck, are able to access Bitcoin through various different ways. And so that was my main takeaway. At the end of the article, you know, he calls for more education towards this mainstream adoption. And this whole idea of Bitcoin reaching a million dollars by July is crazy to me. And we've spoken about this on the show before. Too much mainstream adoption too quickly can introduce way more problems to this industry than we need to deal with right now. I think there's a lot that we still need to solve. And so I am of the opinion that a million by July is crazy, but at least there is an alternative and there are different ways to access the alternative. Well, way to dash all my hopes and dreams. I want a million dollar Bitcoin as soon as possible. I do too. I really do too, but it won't be good. (laughs) It would not be good. And I think that is like the core idea behind the counter to Blodgy Sirvasan's $1 million Bitcoin post. But I think also Blodgy's whole post was just like a meme to get more attention on Bitcoin and on his thesis that a lot of these banking problems are going to become only worse and not better. So in that sense, I think Blodgy's whole thing was like not very serious uh, on the Bitcoin side of things. But I do think it brings up an important point on like what would be the implications for a million dollar Bitcoin in today's society. And that would be pretty bad. I think Peter McCormick put it in a very good way here at the end of the article. Slow and steady adoption would be better than a short, sharp shock. The latter has significant risks, widespread value destruction, people embittered by those who hold Bitcoin, and the risk of government forfeiture. And obviously, it's better to keep Bitcoin ahead of a crisis than learn about it amid a crisis. We saw a little bit of this during the COVID pandemic, right? The beginning of COVID, Bitcoin was a little sluggish. It was around $6,000. We had that little sharp crash on Black Thursday. And then during COVID, uh, we had a lot of money printing and Bitcoin started taking off. In retrospect, the reasons for Bitcoin taking off was mostly because there was like a lot of money pouring into risky assets, right? It wasn't just Bitcoin that was going up. It was a lot of stuff that was risky. But it did catch a lot of people off guard. And I think it frustrated a lot of people and it left some people on the sidelines some people who needed Bitcoin, right? So now that we're sort of in the doldrums again, we're in a bear market, I think it's good to reflect and realize that maybe we do want really slow adoption of Bitcoin because that means the world is a pretty decent place and not a really terrible place. That's my thoughts on it. And I definitely agree with Peter on this one. Ben, I'll throw it back to you. Yeah, I completely agree with him as well. You know, a place in which this inflation hedge thesis is really correct and uh, Bitcoin is going to a million dollars in a hurry is not a financial world that we want to live in. And if we do want to move to hard money, and that's why a lot of us are here, then, um, you know, that should happen more steadily and uh, slowly uh, with widespread base rather than a few people on uh, Wall Street speculating on it. A hedge requires understanding across the world, and it's not something that should be just something amongst a few different people And here in the United States. It's, it's really something for people who live in, in countries with uh, inflation problems, with bad monetary management that really need this. And those are the people we really need to uh, reach out to and educate about what hard money is versus uh, soft money. Love it. Well, we'll turn to a similar Bitcoin topic, not the same one. Actually, I'm going to talk about Bitcoin NFTs. I'm really making Jen happy these days talking about Bitcoin NFTs. You really uh, so are. I, I don't know why I'm doing that. I should, <laughs> yeah, I should not be bringing up these stories, but we have to talk about it. So we talked a lot about Bitcoin ordinals slash Bitcoin inscriptions. There's a little debate on the nomenclature, but same project more or less. Let me introduce everyone to another project that is now popping up, Bitcoin Stamps, S-T-A-M-P-S. Bitcoin Stamps has popped on the scene about the last month. It's really getting traction right now. It uses a different way to store data on chain in order to also make Bitcoin NFTs. If you like to call them NFTs, some people still don't like that term. So you know they might get upset about this segment. That is their problem. 
It has a little bit less functionality than I'd say ordinals or inscriptions. You can store less data. It's more for pixelated art. So like 24 by 24 or CryptoPunks would be a great example of this, as opposed to Bitcoin ordinals, which allows you to store up to the size of a Bitcoin block, that amount of information on chain. Bitcoin ordinals, you can store images, you can store GIFs, you can store video files, you can store sounds. With stamps, you can basically only put like small little images on chain. The difference here, though, and this is sort of like the key marketing point, is that this data is unprunable. It has to stay on Bitcoin forever if that Satoshi that it's minted on stays in the same place. So Bitcoin ordinals, you can prune that data if you change the settings on your node a little bit. Pruning, mating, I'm just going to get rid of that ordinal data. I don't want it on my Bitcoin node. But in this one, you are stuck with these Bitcoin NFTs on your node and there's nothing you can do about it. I think this is just going to put a little bit more fury in the Bitcoin maxi pot because they don't want to see anything to do with NFTs on Bitcoin. But these things are going on chain and they're printing really, really fast right now. Jen, over to you. So I have said this on the show before. I am all for Bitcoin being able to do more things and innovation happening within the Bitcoin ecosystem. I know that some people don't like that, but that's just where I stand. When I look at these NFTs, though, and maybe, Will, you can explain to me a little more. I just feel like the NFT narrative is moving away from JPEGs and art and moving more towards utility. And we've spoken about that on the show a bunch before. It feels to me like we're rolling it way back with this project. When we look at these pixelated JPEGs on Bitcoin, and it's not really taking into consideration all the innovation that's happened with NFTs in the last two years. I come prepared, Jen, for another story very similar to this one with more utility. And that is the BRC20 token, which is a project now launched on top of the ordinals and inscriptions, which allows you to mint tokens on top of Bitcoin, similar to the ERC-20 standard on top of Ethereum. And it might be the utility you're looking for, though a lot of people think it's a meme right now. There are some tokens that are now trading on top of Bitcoin, namely like meme token or Pepe token. These are tokens that you'd normally see on Ethereum or another chain, but people are figuring out how to use ordinals, how to basically use Bitcoin entities to mint tokens like you would see on Ethereum or another chain. Now, to the utility point, I don't know, Jen. Like, I think there is a land where we want to see more Pepe's and more pixelated art on top of Bitcoin. And that is the value standard. But maybe there's more utility out there I don't know about. Ben, what's your thoughts on this? Yeah, I completely agree with Jen. I think it's great that Bitcoin, the Bitcoin blockchain, is being used for other things than just passing money from one user to another. And I think it's a bit ironic. The same people who are arguing for greater adoption of Bitcoin are arguing against the use of Bitcoin for NFT or NFT-like assets. And I think there's a bit of a sort of stale debate there. I think we, if we really believe in the Bitcoin project, we should be for open innovation and people using technology for whatever they want to use it for. And it's not up to a few people sitting in a room to tell other people that they can and can't do something. And uh, that's kind of against the whole ethos of Bitcoin and the whole ethos of uh, open source development. Uh, I think it's great. And I think, by the way, the use of Bitcoin for NFTs like this, I think, is driving the price higher much more readily than the inflation hedge thesis is. I think um, it's it's really a a source of kind of uh, hope and uh, optimism for the Bitcoin project generally, which has not always been the most innovative in terms of finding other uses especially compared to uh, Ethereum, you know, and I think these projects should be broad-based and and used for multiple uses by multiple people. I'm completely with you, Ben. It's not up to a group of grumpy Bitcoiners to make these decisions. 
They can voice them all they want on Twitter, but it's not up to you guys. Sorry. Yeah. One, one funny side note about this, the whole thing actually came up because a group of Bitcoiners came up with Taproot, which enabled a lot of these innovations to occur, specifically ordinals. It does look like the stamps protocol was able to be built a while ago. Nobody had really done it before. So that's new. But inscriptions and ordinals, that all came about because of the Taproot update. And nobody knew this was going to occur because of that. So funny how things happen, but that's how it goes. Jen, throw it back to you as we close out for the day. All right, let's leave it there. Ben Schiller was on the show today. And if you can't get enough of him, you need to listen to another podcast on the Coindesk Podcast Network called Carpe Consensus. It's hosted by Ben, Danny Nelson, and Cam Thompson. You can hear it anywhere that you listen to podcasts. Just type in the Coindesk Podcast Network. Of course, the hash is also on the Coindesk Podcast Network. So if you just love listening to us every single day, head on over there and you can listen to all of the episodes we've done over the past two years. There's hundreds. Thank you so much for joining us on Monday. I'm Jen Sinassi. That's Will Foxley over there and Ben Schiller all the way on the other side. It's been such a pleasure chatting to you all and see you tomorrow. You've been listening to The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, The Hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening.